I don't think we can talk about um, anything okay. except the news that Rudy Giuliani has declared bankruptcy. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. Okay. Yeah, I know it's a hard time for <laughs> What Rudy. I want to know is how do you get allowed to run up debts of as much as $500 million without somebody seeing something, especially when your assets are only $10 million? I don't think that you and I could just go around writing <laughs> checks for $400 million without somebody sort of saying no before we got to that point. Well, it is true. At a certain point, uh, you know, ten million here, ten million there. You know what they say. But well, you know. it's going to be sad if you can't get that hair dye anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. Also, uh, I mean, the truth is, he's also being sued by his own lawyers, from what I gather. The lawyers. I mean, everybody who he's hired for everything, it looks like, is suing him. That may be the one thing that brings us together as a people: is that everybody <laughs> is somehow owed money by Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Jane Mayer, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Susan Glasser and Evan Osnos. Hi, Evan. Hi, Susan. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, great to be with you. For our last episode of 2023, we wanted, as journalists to offer up a clear, compelling frame to make sense of this past year. A single word to define 2023 in politics. But to be honest, um, we were talking about this, and we actually couldn't agree on just one. (laughs) Um, As our colleague at The New Yorker, Kyle Cheka, wrote recently, it's kind of paradoxical to try to give a neat, short name to an age of such uncertainty. And and really, if we were in the midst of a kind of a new age, like a new dark age or a gilded age, would we actually know it? <laughs> um, but, hey, we're like in the headline business and we're used to being reductive and simplistic. And so uh, we kept trying and we kept talking and found uh, the debate was kind of illuminating and sort of fun. So um, we're going to bring you all into our search for a word, an idea, maybe even an animal, to define the year in politics. Our first contender was the year of denial. From the very beginning of this year, denial, as in denying reality, ran deep in D.C., particularly as Republicans and Democrats failed to fully confront the stakes and the risks of the election year ahead. So, Susan, One of the clearest examples you saw of denial shaping politics in 2023 was in Biden world. What were you thinking about? Well, you know, I think that, first of all, denial is one of those, you know, excellent words that covers a multitude of uh, political sins. But it might best be used to capture maybe parts of the electorate. I went back and looked at what we were talking about and writing at the end of 2022 and if anything, uh, the story is 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 strikingly similar. Joe Biden, already the oldest president in the country, preparing to announce again. Millions of Democrats and voters just sort of saying, "Well, it's not going to be him, right? I mean, it'll be somebody else, or something will happen, or you know." So I feel like it, denial applies, but only if we're talking about parts of the electorate. As far as the polls go, look, just two weeks ago, right, or you know, just this past week. Jane, you had President Biden saying, oh, no, I everything's fine. It's just those pesky polls, which for more than a year have showed him in, in big trouble in his reelection bid. Hmm. So, Ev- Evan, what do you think? Denial, 
Is this the year of denial inside Biden world? Well, what I would say there, there was certainly there was an early stage denial in this administration. And you, you remember there was a moment I, I, I really stayed with me after about a year in office. Biden gave a press conference in which he essentially acknowledged. He said, uh, you know, did anybody really think that an out of office politician, meaning Donald Trump, could intimidate an entire conference the way he has? And and it was sort of him coming to terms with the fact that he really did not expect. Do you remember the word that he used during the campaign was that there would be an epitome Tiffany among Republicans and that they would suddenly that the fever would break. And I think that for a while that was a durable fiction, this idea that somehow there would be a moment when Trump would cease to be the dominant figure in the Republican Party. And that never happened. But here's where I actually where we run up against the limits of this question of whether the Biden world is in denial, is that they would make a compelling case. They would say to you, actually, you know what, though, as you look at these polls, you also have to recognize the fact that we saw in 2023 pretty clear evidence that voters themselves are not doing exactly what the polls have described, that if you looked at, for instance, first you had in April, uh, liberal judges in Wisconsin were able to take control of the Supreme Court for the first time since 2008, uh, and they were emphasizing very strongly the role of abortion. Uh, And then you saw again in these off-year elections in Kentucky, in Virginia, uh, in Ohio, you saw the role that abortion played, and that wasn't fully captured in the polls. And so for that reason, the White House says, well, uh, not so fast. That may not be the whole story. You know, I have to say, though, Evan, that sounds like almost the very definition of denial to me, Uh, you know, or at least uh, a pretty thin gruel of spin to, you know, kind of make your your peace with. At this point in time, even in the best case scenario, even by the admission of Joe Biden's own campaign, they are running at best, essentially in a dead even heat with Donald Trump by their own admission. Joe Biden is heading into his re-election year, not only running against Donald Trump, but literally facing the toughest political environment in terms of these are Democratic and independent voters who have soured on uh, Joe Biden. He's facing the worst environment essentially since recent modern polling for an incumbent president. Like, he may still win. He may still pull it out. But it sounds like denial to be like, oh, look at this judicial election in Wisconsin. Well, okay, but there's a little bit of denial on the Republican side too, right? Okay, because um, look at this year's Republican primary debates. I mean, it's it's pretty hard not to see a stage filled with people in total denial. I would say I mean, so. Yeah. <laughs> mainly Definitely. about their chances of winning the nomination, right? I mean, does does Susan or Evan does does anyone really think one of these characters is going to get the nomination and defeat Trump in the primaries at this point? You guys. The sound of deafening silence there. (laughs) Uh, You know, at this point, there really is just this running clock about how long it will take before Chris Christie drops out. And at that point, then it becomes Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. But no, I mean, what you've seen is for a long time, there was this feeling that, you know, could one of them actually chip away at Donald Trump's dominance? Or really, are they all just running to be vice president? And that seems to be where we are at the end of the process. You don't. I mean, I have heard. One or two people say they have this sort of this this bank shot thing going for Nikki Haley, that she does better in Iowa than expected. So she beating expectations rather than beating Trump goes into New Hampshire, where she's endorsed by Sununu, again, does better than expected and then moves it into South Carolina. Not impossible. Her own state where she is behind Trump now. 
But, I mean, there are people who say that if she had momentum and looked like a fresh face instead of a felon, <laughs> I don't know it's possible. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, look, if we're doing the reality checking here, I mean, you're totally right that it's not just Democrats. It's not just Biden world. I, as far as Republicans go, Donald Trump literally has the biggest lead uh, of any Republican in a contested primary ever. So if he were to not win the nomination at this point, it would be uh, just an extraordinary reversal. Remember, in our year-end conversation in 2022, Ron DeSantis, he had, you know, 19-point victory in Florida, the formerly battleground state. He was going to be the Trump slayer. The Republican establishment, uh, you know, wanted to make their jailbreak. Boom, here we are. Ron DeSantis was actually already going down in the polls against Trump even before Trump used these four momentous criminal indictments to sort of rally and reconsolidate the Republican base. So the story in many ways, it seems to me, of 2023 and the Republicans is a story about this failed effort to embrace DeSantis as an alternative to Trump. And, you know, the re-establishment of what, you know, many people knew. I don't think people were in denial about it, but I'm interested what you guys think. Like, it's been Donald Trump's party since the moment he bound them to himself once again with his incredible lies about the 2020 election. When two-thirds of the House Republican conference, you know, walked over the shattered glass of the U.S. Capitol and voted uh, to deny the election, it's been Donald Trump's party ever since. When we were planning this episode earlier in the week, Susan, you thought denial was not the right word here. So I'm not sure. Yeah, well, what, you what had is a case you really that you were think? making, Susan, yeah. that you didn't and, think I mean, that and denial. Evan was saying sleepwalking, that like everybody's sleepwalking. But you were saying, actually, it's something something darker, I think, than denial, right? Right. Well, that's, that, that have... is a good point. I, you know, sure, sleepwalking, that's an incredibly powerful metaphor. Sleepwalking into World War One, a la Barbara Tuckman, sleepwalking walking into the end of our democracy. But it, it seems to me that Republicans, this is my point about that it's it's really Trump's party and they knew that. Uh, and that, in fact, it is something much darker. If I had to pick, uh, you know, we we're talking about this exercise of a word or an animal or whatever, I, I'm just actually going to go right back to Orange Jesus, uh, which is the incredible, <laughs> incredible metaphor uh, name that uh, Liz Cheney, the Republican apostate, uh, quoted one of her fellow Republican members of Congress as calling Donald Trump back in 2020. I mean, you just, you can't do better. It is it is the once and future party of the orange Jesus. The Republican Party is not your father's GOP. It's not your grandfather's GOP. It is the party of orange Jesus. I mean, that, that gives no space to Biden at all, though. It basically gives the year to Trump and to orange Jesus. And so, I mean, and I think you... this is this is sort of where it becomes more than just a tactical or a stylistic choice. This is not about denying the reality of Donald Trump's threat to the United States or about his political strength, but also about acknowledging what has actually happened politically, that they have been able to sign bills despite the fact that you had this complete and total paralysis in Congress, the fact that through hook and crook, Joe Biden and his White House were able to get one past Mitch McConnell by being able to get the Inflation Reduction Act done. I, I, I sort of feel like, and this has been an ongoing theme of ours this year, acknowledging that on some level, look, this is not just about 23. Obviously, it's about the whole administration. Yeah, the question is, you know, how much will voters in the end, 
reward this White House for things that are not uh, the first things on our lips. There, it's obviously people want to talk about inflation. They want to talk about uh, the prices of goods in the grocery store. But they do want to talk about abortion. They do want to talk about the threat to democracy. And that sometimes gets lost. I think that's right. But I, I feel like there is this element that's almost painful because, you know, we've just been kind of having this conversation for not just one year, but for a couple years with with Biden. We Washington people, we we overestimate, it seems to me, consistently, you know, the impact of policy debates and, you know, our kind of, you know, ideological uh, bona fides when it comes to presidential elections. And, you know, it's not just the year of the orange Jesus. I, I, I take Jane's point on that. I think it is a very decisive year, but the decision that's another word I would nominate, is a year of decision as opposed to denial. And we don't know how those decisions are going to pan out yet. But Joe Biden made a very consequential decision. He decided at the age of 80 and then 81 to run for re-election. You know, talk about upping the ante uh, here. Uh, not only is this an election in which he says democracy is on the line, but he's asking Americans to make a bet on a guy who's going to be 86 years old at the end of his next term if he's elected. So that was a big decision. At the beginning of the year, we didn't know what was going to happen in these cases involving Donald Trump. Would he actually become the first former president in American history to become uh, criminally indicted? Well, the prosecutors and grand juries, they made huge and monumental decisions to indict Donald Trump not once but four times. And to me, those are kind of two of the biggest decisions I can think of actually in, in modern politics. So I'm I'm totally down with if I can get you guys to agree that uh, this was a year of decision. Well, I mean, I'm not ready to give up on denial yet. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> okay, Jay. okay. I mean, you know, I think it's a really interesting decision you bring up, which is Biden's decision to run. It was, in a way, that's a decision that that really didn't get enough attention. Mm. I mean, people have lamented it. They've wished he didn't make it. I think this is an area that's rich for more reporting. How did he make that decision? He ran as a bridge candidate saying he was going to be a bridge to the future. We don't, you know, there are a lot of rumors that Jill wanted him to run again. We don't really know. I feel like that it was a big decision that we didn't see enough about. I had a thought about one more possible word, which is that this was the year of nihilism. Mm. It's the year that the Republican Party moved from its doctrine and its ideology being embracing neoliberalism and moved full into nihilism. And that's when you got like this total dysfunction in the House of Representatives, which has been spectacularly disastrous to watch, and nothing stopping Trump no matter how many indictments and uh, civil judgments against him. The party has become unrecognizable to people who remember it as something else. It's a party with a nihilistic— With with a void at the center. Yeah, a void at the center. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll look at some people and institutions that actually bucked these trends and what they can teach us about this past year in politics. Hey, Political Scene listeners, the Iowa caucuses are just a few weeks away, and that means that we are getting ready for a new phase here, the 2024 election. And we want to hear from all of you. We want to hear your questions about any and all of it. 
there have been a lot of questions about how the media has covered politics, particularly Trump, in the last couple of years. And I, I think it'd be really interesting to hear questions from listeners about what they actually want to hear about. So, so send in your questions. Yeah, fire away. I mean, we want to hear from you. So tell us what we should be talking about in 2024, because uh, your opinion matters. Send us your questions at themail at newyorker.com, and you might hear some answers on the show. Be sure to put the political scene in the subject line. Again, it's themail at newyorker.com. And thank you very much. And now back to the show. Well, let's look at some moments where the truth seemed to get its day in 2023. We saw, of course, four criminal indictments, 91 felony charges, and two civil judgments against Trump, one for business fraud and one for sexual abuse. We also saw Dominion Voting Systems sue Fox News and receive an almost $800 million settlement. So are the courts the only branch of the American government capable of holding Trump accountable? And if so, did it matter this year? Yeah, you know, I I took this actually to be a, a meaningful point in the chronology, which is that, remember, we had Fox News after the election and around the election just blithely, gleefully trafficking in the lie, the fiction that the election was stolen. And it was as if it was a sort of fantasy land, a legal fantasy land that you could say what you wanted and not have to deal with the consequences. And of course, we discovered that, no, in fact, the courts and a jury will, in fact, side uh, against Fox for doing it. And then you see also in the Georgia case, which I find very interesting for this reason, you had Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis and all of these people who just kind of went along with this in the end, completely wild and indefensible uh, theory that they could say whatever they want and not have to deal with it. That case did not come from nowhere. That was a case that was conceived, strategized, and ultimately pursued by a group of people. It's this organization called Protect Democracy. And they went out and they did this and it worked. And they managed to get this judgment. There's a whole other conversation about whether those two election workers will ever get the money. But it was a big, fat message that says to people like Rudy Giuliani, you cannot say this and expect to live in a world of no consequences. You're so right. I mean, it's so interesting, too, that it's an outside group. It's a nonprofit. It's part of American civil society, which is what held firm even during the last Trump administration when things were most strained. Susan, are you thinking the courts are going to hold and and make a difference in Trump's um, trajectory? Well, I would say that's why I say it was a year of decision, but not of resolution. And I do think that the resolution matters. Remember that if Donald Trump were to win the 2024 presidential election, it would be in a way not only potentially despite or flouting uh, of the courts and of the idea that these indictments mattered, uh, but in fact, would pose this enormous challenge to the legitimacy and independence of the courts from his position as a reelected but potentially convicted president. So I feel like it's an open question that the indictments in and of themselves do not necessarily uh, spell accountability. That's not to say that it wasn't important. I totally agree with Evan that uh, we're in such a deep crisis that individual actors, right, they have no choice but just to do the right thing. And history will certainly judge it, I think, important that people made efforts to hold Trump to account. Uh, If anything, right, the argument is a 
tactical one with the Justice Department of uh, Biden's very cautious Attorney General Merrick Garland. It seems to me that if they were always going to indict and charge Trump on the basis of what happened after the 2020 election, that they made a, a colossal error of not doing it sooner and therefore guaranteeing that the legitimacy and independence of these court proceedings would be challenged and tied all up with the campaign season. How much better for American democracy would it have been to have charged Donald Trump and have the trials before any votes were cast in 2024? Well, I'm not sure that they really knew that they were going to go in this direction and charge him. In fact, it seems in some ways that it was really the the House committee that made the case against him. And it was only then that they really saw that they had to move forward. So it wasn't that they were waiting. It was that they were tardy in seeing their responsibility here, Yes, that's what I'm saying. Absolutely. I'm I'm thinking Uh it's an incredible failure that history is not going to look well on. You know, Evan, I mean, since we're talking about the accountability in Mm -hmm. the legal system and whether it, it really can hold these... Um, miscreants uh, accountable. I mean, do you feel that that settlement against Fox has put a dent in their coverage and will force them to be responsible? Well, one person you could ask for that question is Tucker Carlson, who lost his job as a result of that settlement. And one could make the case that because I and I think this is an important theme here. Obviously, the underlying theme here is does it matter? You know, this is, you know, is there any point in doing these kinds of things or is it are we all just sort of uh, victims ultimately in this process beyond our control? No, actually, the fact that Tucker Carlson, who had the highest rated show in America and was the on cable television and was uh, day in and day out trafficking in some of the most malicious conspiracy theories, the fact that he ultimately was booted off of Fox is a message to people out there that says actually you can and you must. You must stand up against these folks when they do it. If you don't do it, if you just say, well, what's the point? Then you're giving up. And I, I, so I, I'd say that I think for that reason, these are important moments to recognize. Unless, of course, he ends up on the vice presidential ticket he along might with well. Trump, which I just saw a poll of, of conservative students being asked. He was among the choices that they were supposed to pick. Um, well, another big story this past year, of course, has been the fight over reproductive rights. Um, and after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, support for reproductive rights drove voters in elections across the country. It doesn't seem like denial quite describes how voters have handled that particular issue, does it, in 2023? Is there a better word? Yeah, I actually think, you know, what they're doing is they're cutting through uh, the membrane that the press in some cases represents. You know, we like to generate a narrative that says that actually maybe these issues are not as important. And ultimately what you see is that people do get out and vote when they care about an issue as as important as this one. Well, I think the important thing to note about these uh, elections in which reproductive rights for women have figured is that it's where they're specifically on the ballot. And, uh, you know, it's not in the kind of personality dominant campaigns for president or, uh, you know, senator. It's in, you know, a place like Kansas where there's a very specific question of what's going to happen to women. Uh, it's in a place like Ohio. These are red states. I think it's a reminder 
that there's so much more that unites Americans than we we tend to remember in a day in day out basis, right? You know, there's a basis for governing from the center that our politicians don't do. How much that translates into individual elections, like the presidential election that we're talking about, that's not clear at all. Uh, but it, I think, it's very to me. It is one of those like head snapping reminders that you know, kind of civil war is not inevitable. Division is not inevitable. Uh, look at gun rights versus the idea that Americans would support some kind of limitations on guns. This huge percentage of Americans, like over 90% support more gun controls than we've had in this country. And the same thing turned out to be true in many red states when it came to reproductive rights. So I think it's a powerful thing, but I'm not sure it, it it's enough to, you know, cut the 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 chokehold, frankly, that uh, uh, extreme candidates have on, in particular, the Republican Party in America today, doesn't seem I mean, to be any evidence that you know Kansas or Ohio are going to start uh, electing much more uh, non-Trumpist, non-MAGA politicians because they've voted this way in uh, specific referenda. But there is certainly a play being made by the Democratic Party to put this issue through referenda right. on states, yeah. across, in, in particularly, of course, in battleground states, to the extent that they can, in order to bring out voters. Because it is something that really does galvanize voters. And, um, I mean, it's a, you, you have to step back and think of the irony here, which is that there's been a 40-year campaign to take over the Supreme Court by the conservative legal movement, largely to overturn Roe v. Wade. And when they got what they wanted, they triggered immediate backlash that is so much more than they bargained for when they caught the tiger by the tail. Yeah, that's actually I think you've you've identified, Jane, a, a, like a critical theme from this year, too, because this was a year in which you saw these fringe elements seize control of powerful institutions. Look what happened in Congress, where you had this little tiny piece of the Republican conference hold the, the whole uh, body in paralysis while they couldn't elect a speaker. Um, but ultimately, and, and one of the things we'll have to discover is, do voters punish them for it? And do people ultimately care? What we know now is that voters certainly cared when it came to this issue. And they've certainly punished the Supreme Court in terms of its, you know, public support for the legitimacy of the court. You, you can see it in the polls. It's reached all-time lows. So, Well, nice um, pivot there, Evan, to the, uh, I don't even know what to call it, the, <laughs> the incredible circus spectacle of uh, the House of Representatives yeah. this year, because it is, I think it's an amazing example of, uh, you know, there's a phrase, state capture, you know, institution capture by the most kind of nihilistic, uh, radical minority there could possibly be. I'm determined to use every word that we have uh, had in this conversation. But if you, Jane, if you want to still make the argument for your nihilism, you know, you can do worse than what happened in the House of Representatives this year. Let's talk about this in, in terms of how 2023 will be remembered. First time in American history that a, a Speaker of the House has been deposed, right? Never happened before. I, it was the first time since uh, the middle of the 19th century and the pre-Civil War era Era when it took so many ballots to get a speaker elect in the first place. And of course, Kevin McCarthy, you know, didn't survive very long. I personally nominate the literally unknown uh, extremist new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson, to be uh, the person <laughs> of man who of the most year. <laughs> exemplifies uh, the state of our politics this year. Oh, my God. You know, if you think about denial, okay, let's just go back to that word for one sec. You know, in psychological theory, 
is the first stage of the grieving process. Mm. And then comes anger, then bargaining, then depression, Mm. and finally acceptance. Can you have Um, them all at once? (laughs) I just wonder, are we in the first stage of the grieving process? And if so, what are we grieving? And do we have to accept where this is going? You know, I, I think it's pretty clear that there's there's a bit of anger going on. I think there's certainly a bit of depression going on, uh, a bit of bargaining. But I also think that people are sort of fighting back. And I, I think that's one of the themes that comes through a bit in the course of this process is that, you know, there, there is at the core of what we're talking about, we're going through a period in which, um, you know, to quote the old line, things are going to get worse before they get much worse. I mean, that's kind <laughs> of the phase that Washington feels like right now. And But I think on, on some level, as we've learned over the last six or seven years, sometimes really to our horror, that voters have a way of surprising Washington. And we saw that on the downside when it came to Donald Trump being elected. But there are also ways in which people can assert the fact that they are not going to be driven out of the process just by the antics of what happens in D.C. Well, so as we wrap up, is there a better word to describe our politics in 2023 or or maybe like a mascot or an animal or something like that? You know, (laughs) I mean, I have thought like the year of the ostrich Mm. when, when, when people's heads are in the sand and they're not looking at the threat, they're just hiding from it or... And that got me thinking about birds, and I began thinking in the aviary line, maybe the year of the dodo bird. Or <laughs> is American democracy about to go to extinct? Or um, what do you guys? How about you guys? Any? You know, any I, I've been I've this? been reading um, around on this topic a little bit. I'm not on on the subject of animals, dodo I'm afraid. Birds? But no, oh, I wish goodness. I knew more. But no, there were, you know, I I was looking back at. Somebody else who talked about politics in animal terms was Machiavelli, who, oh, really? after all, might be the sort of patron saint of Washington, D.C. And he said that to be a successful leader, you have to be part lion and part fox because ah. you need the lion to scare people away, but you need the fox in order to avoid the trap. So I think there's something fitting about this kind of ungodly creature, you know, this insult to biology that might actually be the Washington mascot. Susan, what do you think? Well, I, you know, honestly, that would be an enormous compliment to, to Donald Trump uh, to think that he had <laughs> any of the qualities of either a fox or a lion, except for possibly decibel level when it comes to, you know, the the bellowing at some of his things. You know, the thing about the ostrich, Jane, that gets me is that if this is indeed this perilous moment, which which I think it's fair to say it is for American democracy. It's not going to be because people weren't warned, right? You know, it's 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 not going to be because of that. You know, the Washington Post is running pieces about the increasing inevitability of a fascist dictatorship in the United States of America. And nobody thinks this is, you know, too far outside of the realm of the plausible to at least be argued over in public. You know, so we, we've come a long way from when Donald Trump first rode down that escalator in 2015. And I think it's hard at times to remember that. You know, it's funny that we're talking about animals now because the, the metaphor throughout the Trump presidency that was often used was the the one about the boiled frog. And was this Trump turning up the temperature and turning up the temperature, getting us to agree to the previously unthinkable things in our politics? And before you know, we were dead because we boiled to death in in, in our own little froggish stew. You know, nobody even uses that metaphor anymore, which to me, I don't know, might be just a very disturbing sign. But, you know, 
I think about 2024 and I've got such an incredible case of anticipatory dread. I, you know, if this is a train, like I want <laughs> off, I want off. I recognize that we don't get the chance uh, to opt out of moving ahead, whatever is to come. But oh my, I have a big case of the, the 2024 jitters. I, I do too. I feel we're on the brink. And I, I just want to say, I really hope we have not reached Quise de Grenouille. <laughs> we're we're not there yet. I'm hoping so. Evan, you don't you you're smiling. You don't have anticipatory dread. I I I sort of I'm already actually interested in how it will feel to us when we look back and listen to this a year from now. I mean, I do think you know there is a terrible uncertainty that surrounds what we're going through. But on some level, you know, ever thus, I'm not minimizing the risks and the consequences of what we're facing, but. I do think on some level it, it pays to step back and, and think about what we've been through and what we've actually surmounted in the past. And I think that should be a source of confidence rather than making us cower from what's ahead. Wow, I'm Zen. so glad Zen to end Evan. on this. We, we have to end on this note because <laughs> it's giving us all hope. All right, and well, it's so, we'll take so what great. we can get. I don't know. What, right what drugs are you so. on, man? I want some of that. <laughs> This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Jane Mayer. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards, with editing by Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We're taking next week off, but we'll be back in two weeks. And thanks for listening.